0: Happy New Year, Central Christian Church. Woo! Hey, and Happy New Year, too, to those folks uh, joining us online. We're excited to have you. So give them a round of applause, guys, everybody. Yeah, We're super pumped. Hey, I was so excited to talk today to you guys that my wife reminded me that it was my son's third birthday. So I told, yeah, so he's going to have to wait for his celebration until I'm done. So happy birthday, Enzo. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So way to go, Dad. All right. So, New Year's time, New Year's resolutions, New Year's resolutions, who's made New Year's resolutions this year? Anybody raise a hands? Yeah, just a couple of you have made resolutions this year. How you doing with it? Have you kept it? It's five days. You kept it? By a show of hands, who's kept the resolution so far? Just a few. Yeah. Okay, even better. By a show of hands, who didn't make a resolution just because you thought you'd never keep it anyways? Yeah. I mean, come on, guys. That's, that's the right approach to take. I mean, you're going to fail anyways. Forget, just don't even try. Yeah let's not try. And that's the truth, isn't it? I mean, it's, we're not exactly faithful to these sorts of things. However, does anybody know the name Old Faithful? You guys know that name? Any uh, geography buffs, I guess, National Park buffs? Yeah. Old Faithful is the name of the geyser in Jellystone, I mean, sorry, Yellowstone <laughs> National Park. Hey, boo-boo. Don't stop my a basket. I, I love Yogi, Every I'm a cartoon guy, so it's, that's, that's kind of what happens. Old Faithful, yeah, check it out. Old Faithful up there in the back. Old Faithful was discovered in 1870 by the Washburn Expedition, named it Old Faithful because it frequently erupts. It's almost, it's not perfect, but it frequently erupts. Check this out. There have been one million eruptions of Old Faithful ever since, uh, ever since Yellowstone became the first national park in 1872. It's kind of crazy. Now, these eruptions, as you see behind, can vary in height from like 100 feet to 180 feet. Um, The eruptions themselves can also last anywhere between like a minute and a half to like five minutes in length. And they happen 20 times a day. That's very consistent. That's why it's old faithful. Now, how much water is shot out of this thing, right, at each eruption? It varies, again, in range 3,400 to 8,400 gallons Every time an eruption hits, again, is depending on, on how often it erupts. Now, um, if you thought, hey, this looks really cool. It's like a really cool facial. I'm going to get really close and get a steam. But no, like don't, like it's 204 degrees Fahrenheit measured at the base of the vent where it opens up, right? It's kind of it's crazy. It's kind of crazy. Now, it has kind of stepped back a little bit from its reliability due to some geological events and stuff, but it's still really reliable. It went from like 21 eruptions a day to like 20, so... Nope, no big deal, right? It's still extremely reliable. Okay, so anybody else know the name of something else that could be called Old Faithful? It's not a geyser. It's a piece of of literature. I'm gonna give you a hint, churchy people. Yeah, yeah, it's the Bible, right? The Bible can be known as something that is reliable, all right? This incredible book is not only the most reliable book, in history, the most faithful book in history, but is also the most printed, best-selling, and most translated book in all of history. And if you just open up its pages, like you'll discover some amazing things inside, and it'll tell you some awesome stuff about your life. Now, it's not only this amazing book, but it's also one of the most challenged and most critiqued books in history. Matter of fact, it is the most challenging critiqued books in history. So, What I want to do this morning, as we have some time together, I won't be able to go super far into it because there's a lot of information, but I just want to look at the historical reliability of the Bible. And if if I'm able to show you its historical reliability, then the stuff that's in it, you really need to take close attention to it and look how you're living your lives based on it, okay? That's what we're going to do, all right? Now, the first challenge that might come up as you're doing this is somebody might say to you as you share a Bible verse with them or something, is, hey, you know what, that's great. And all all that's awesome, but your Bible's full of errors. That may be the first challenge that you come across. And like, what do you do? Like, what do you say when somebody says, "Hey, man, like your Bible's full of all these errors. Like, there's holes in them." Well, the first thing I want you to know, okay, is honestly, often they don't know an error themselves. They are just regurgitating something they may have heard. Okay, now it's kind of like we all do this anyways. Like, like you talk about a movie. Yeah, you know, that movie's terrible. Hey, tell me something about that movie that you didn't like. I don't know, I didn't see it, right? Like that's often some of the responses that happen. So the first thing I would say to you is this, is just challenge them nicely and respectfully. Can you please show me one of these alleged errors that you're talking about? Now, they most likely won't be able to respond, but listen, be prepared. There are people that certainly can respond with very specific examples. And you think to yourself, what am I supposed to do then? Techie answer, you guys ready for this? just Google it. Like it's there. Like Google has a wealth of knowledge from tons of Christian thinkers, Christian scholars, theologians that have done the work already for you. All you got to go do is like type it in and start looking for it because it's there. There's tons of information there. Um, And then what I would say is don't be afraid to say, I don't know. Like it's okay to say, I don't know. And then if they're genuine about that question, they're genuine about something they said to you, they're going to give you time to come back to them and give them an honest answer. If they're genuine, if they're not, then you just kind of know where that conversation's going to go, okay? So I would say just make sure you do that. Now, there's also another group of people that do this like for their whole life, like this is what they do. It's called textual criticism. It's kind of like this, this way of verifying that what is written in these words and what was copied over time is accurate with what should have been originally in this book, okay? Now, textual criticism has shown that there are slight variances or, uh, in, in some of these trans, in some of these copies of some of these translations that have made, and that should be expected over a long period of time however it 's very important to note that these these variants are really like variants of s- misspelling of errors, and think about text messages I mean they 're atrocious spelling anyways, so, so right, it's bad spelling there They they miss a verse or a line, okay, or a word, um, and or, they, uh, and, or they, just, um, they just repeated one. That's the heirs. That's the majority of the heirs. So nothing's really major in that. As a matter of fact, there's a gentleman by the name of Bruce Metzger. He's like the foremost New Testament textural critic, okay, out there. Metzger, after taking a look at all the documents through the New Testament, this is what he said. He said that not one doctrine of the church is it jeopardy? Something like, let's say, the doctrine of sin or something of this sort, okay? Not one of them is, is, at, is at jeopardy, okay, by a variant reading of the New Testament. Basically, what he's saying is, hey, textual criticism, we can be confident that what's in the Bible is reliable. Now, did you know this? That there are 24,000 manuscripts and early translations of our New Testament, if you look at the Old Testament stuff, there's like 66,000 of those things. Now you might be saying, hey, that's great, Chris, but like, look, New York Times bestsellers sell like a million copies. And that's true. They sell like a million copies, but they have printing presses and they weren't printing presses back at the time of Jesus and following up until the, into the early, until uh, in, into, into more of a latter time. So the evidence that we have in the Bible simply dwarfs all of the other evidences of antiquity. Okay, things like Homer's Iliad and so on, right, which just pale in comparison to how many documents we actually have. But not only that, not only that, but there are like tens of thousands of quotes from these early church fathers, guys that followed after the apostles and disciples left the earth, these early church fathers, there are tens of thousands of New Testament quotes that, are, that we have available to us. And it led these New Testament critics, Bruce Metzger, you see it behind me, <clears throat> Bruce Metzger again, and then Bart Ehrman, who is an atheist and by no stretch would be called a Christian. It led them to say this, check us out. Besides textural evidence derived from New Testament Greek manuscripts and from early versions, the textual critic has available the numerous scriptural quotations in the commentaries, sermons and other treatises written by the early church fathers. Indeed, so extensive are these citations that if all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. Here's the gist of what they just said. Check this out. If we lost the New Testament, like it was just gone, we could just make it, we could just make it right back out with what these guys wrote, okay? Here's the big idea for this point. Here's the big idea. What we have is what was written, okay? Now, number two, somebody might say this to you. They might say, well, yeah, um, okay, maybe it's not full of errors, but it's full of legends. Like the Bible is simply just a bunch of mythical, crazy stories, right? What they're saying is that there's this gap of time between when Jesus lived and then when writings about him started to show up, okay? And they're saying that given that amount of time, Like, there's all of this legendary stuff that crept in. Are you ready for this? Because some of our earliest evidence for the reliability of the stories in the New Testament begin within just about an early period of Jesus' time. The first thing we have is this creed recorded by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have your Bibles out... Please open them up to 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15, starting in verse 3. If you don't, pull up your Bible apps. If not, I believe it's on the screen behind you. But here we go, okay? Check out what the Apostle Paul says in this resurrection appearance. Here's where he said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, again, in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas. Now, Cephas is Peter's name, okay? So he appeared to Peter. And then to the twelve, which is the disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And here's an important point. Most of whom are still alive. And those some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. And then to all the apostles. Last of all, as Paul says of himself, uh, to me as one untimely born, he appeared. Now, Paul's saying this. Look, check it out. First, he says that he received something, and that's important. Like, he was given this information. So before he wrote 30 years later this Corinthian church, Paul had already gotten this information about this accurate statement, this creed about the resurrection, okay? Now, Dr. Gary Habermas from my alma mater, Liberty University, go Flames, uh, he to dates this work, this creed, within five years of Jesus' resurrection. That's, that's powerful, okay? Basically, he says that, you know, given the fact that we know when Paul was persecuting the early Christian church, and then he goes to Damascus, and he's, you know, bam, he sees Jesus and so on. So he's converted, and then he goes back a couple years later to meet with James and Peter in the church in Jerusalem. That's who gave him this, and he says, look, all of that stuff, all of that happened within like five years, Five years of the resurrection of Jesus. So what it's basically saying is there were these Jewish people that became Christians that were already talking about this empty tomb. Now, what was the earliest historical account of what or or, or reason why the tomb was empty? You guys remember what the Jews were saying? Yeah, the disciples stole the body, right? So the earliest account already had this empty tomb. Then you couple this with the information here, with what Paul was talking about, this early creed. And guess what? You got some really historical credibility that there was a body that was missing. Now, you got to deal with where where that body might have gone. But I don't have time for that this morning because there's a lot of information written on that. But the bottom line is you can start to see that there's a lot of reliability, a lot of credibility here in his life. And you think three to five years, that's a long time to elapse. But in historical standards, like three to five years is nothing. It's like tomorrow compared to how we judge some historical writings that we, that we account for that are reliable today. So one of the most important doctrines in Christianity occurs just within a few years. And guys, that's, inc- that's incredible. So we've got to take that as, as powerful. If we go further into that, the Synoptic Gospels, those Gospels that are written from the relative same source, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three are written anywhere from 30 to 40 years after Jesus' life. And if we go a little further with John, the John gospel, it's within like 60 years of Jesus's life. It's too short of a period of time. And they were written by eyewitnesses or people who were in contact with the eyewitnesses of Jesus's life. Okay. And again, that might seem like a really long time, but it's really short. And when you look at the example, like in Mark's gospel, for example, like the resurrection in Mark's gospel, it's very simple. You have these women going on Sunday to discover the tomb, and there's an angel inside. He's sitting there, and he's like, hey, look, he's not here. He's been risen. Go tell Peter. Very simple, very unadorned, um, very basic a description Contrast this with like the gospel of Peter, which is not included in the New Testament for good reasons. It's like 150 years after um, the life of Jesus and written by a P, allegedly Peter under a surname. But listen to this, descri- this description. It's kind of wild. This description of this resurrection event, okay? They see three males who have come out from the sepulcher with the two supporting one another and the cross following them and the head of the two reaching into heaven but that one of being led out by hand and them going by beyond the heavens. And they were hearing a voice from the heavens saying, have you made a proclamation to the fallen asleep? And obeisance is heard from the cross. Yes. Like that is legendary. These heads expanding up into heaven and this cross speaking back, yay, in response to this question from heaven. Like that's totally different than what we see in the old test. I mean, in in the older accounts and you know the the more reliable accounts. And Paul says this is important. These eyewitnesses were alive, right? Like he said that in that in in First Corinthians. Eyewitnesses—they're still alive. Some are still alive. What does that mean? Like they could say, no, that's wrong. What you're saying is not accurate. This is actually how it happened. The eyewitnesses were still around. Those who saw the risen Savior were still around when these gospels were being written or they were written by the eyewitnesses. Guys, big idea. Ready for this? Another big idea. What we have written is what happened. And last point, maybe somebody says, yeah, the Bible's great and all and inspiring you, but there's other religious texts out there Like, they say stuff too. How is it any different than any other religious texts? That's a good question. there are a number of them, but I just want to focus in just really quickly on two of them. One, written by the prophet Muhammad, called the Quran, and the second, written by Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon. Okay? Now, the prophet Muhammad himself stated, allegedly, when he received this vision from the angel Gabriel, that it was a very violent um, apparition of the angel Gabriel, in which Gabriel choked um, uh, Muhammad and made him write the words that he was giving him, okay? Now, that was one person receiving a vision from one place. Same thing with Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith alleges that this angel Moroni gave him this incredible vision to which he writes the Book of Mormon and then accidentally loses the Book of Mormon altogether, And then finds these magical seeing stones and puts his head down and is able to see through these seeing stones and rewrite the entire Book of Mormon. Again, one book written by one person with one vision, okay? Now, what about the Bible? The Bible has 39 authors, over 1,500 years of writing the 66 books that are contained in our Bible, Old and New Testament, okay? They write with incredible cohesion and accuracy that detail historical events unmatched in any work in all of history. It's not just one person's word to you. It's 39 different authors spoken through the Holy Spirit telling you this is what happened. And there are things like the book of Daniel where Daniel was named to be the third person in power, if you remember that story, him and Belshazzar, okay? You remember that story. And and the idea is that for a long time, they debated that there wasn't, there shouldn't be Reason for Daniel to be third in power, he should have been second in power because we don't know who this Belshazzar guy is. There was only this guy, Nebendidus, or whatever his name is, something like that, sorry for botching his name, but Nabinidus, and he was there, and they they couldn't find this Belshazzar until later on. History and archaeology found out that there actually was a Belshazzar, he was second in power, and so when he said to Daniel, I make you third in power in the kingdom, it was real the facts of the Bible continue to be found out more and more to be reliable on a historical context. Now, it led an atheist-turned-Christian, Sir William Ramsey, who spent his life evaluating the archaeology of the Bible to make this statement. William Ramsey said this about Luke, the writer of the gospel that bears his name, and the book of Acts, okay, which is sometimes called Luke 2. <laughs> Luke is a historian of the first Rank Not merely are his statements of facts trustworthy. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. Big idea. Ready? What happened in the Bible is reliable. I think I've given some uh, quality, solid evidence for the reliability of what we have in the Bible. But now we have to kind of ask ourselves, well, what does it say? If it's reliable, then it's got to matter what it says. The Christians, you've probably done this already. You've probably looked at the Bible before. You've read through it. Maybe you've gone through the whole thing. Maybe just sometimes not deeply enough. And unbelievers, you probably have never really picked this thing up. But what you got to do is... Just pick it up yourselves. I don't want you to do like the person earlier on we talked about that kind of just says, I saw the movie, but you didn't see the movie. Like actually do the work yourself. Like pick it up, read it, and see what it says, okay? Now, Paul wrote this to the book of Romans, and it's profound, and I think it's gonna guide us on the rest of our journey this morning. In the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, verses one through two, you probably know them, very familiar with them. The apostle Paul wrote this. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, Brothers, by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Paul tells us clearly here, your bodies are to be made like a living sacrifice. Now, visitors don't go, like, I knew it. Like, you Christians are totally weird. You're talking about, like, sacrificing people. No, it's a living sacrifice. We're not going to, like, we're not going to do that. It's okay. Biblical context, a sacrifice, a sacrifice had to be perfect to cover for the errors, the sins of imperfect things. And you know, earlier, Kyle talked about we're imperfect people in progress, right, at this church. So you had to have this perfect thing cover for imperfection. That's the story of the cross. Like the story of the cross is that this perfect Savior, this Jesus, this God come down into, into our humanity, embracing us fully. This perfect being said, in order to cover for you imperfect people, I've got to go to the cross and pay for all of that once and for all. And that's what the cross is all about. Like he paid for us. So then if that's the case, then we've got to be living our lives as daily sacrifices. And how do you do that? You've got to get rid of sin. Now, sin's another one of those churchy words that sometimes you hear. You're like, like, okay, sin, what does it actually mean? It's basically just not doing what God, as this perfect moral authority, desires us and instructs us to do. It's falling short of these perfect commands. And last time I checked, like me and everybody else here included, we do it all the time. It happens. We're not perfect. But that doesn't change the fact, brothers and sisters, this morning— that we have got to take this thing of sin seriously. Certainly if we accept that Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he has, by his mighty overwhelming grace, removed the penalty of our sins for us. He has done that eternally. He's taken it away from us. But what we have to recognize is that though that part's taken away, this unending, pervasive consequence of our sin here and now is still very present and very real. I want to get real with you guys this morning. Not that I haven't been real, but I'm going to get a little more real with you. I had a great victory over a particular area uh, of sin in my life. Uh, it was really, really difficult for me. About a decade ago, it was the sin of pornography. The guys, I used to look at pornography quite a bit, and I was, I was quite frankly addicted to it. But thanks to the grace of God, and thanks to lots of prayer and a lot of time, God removed that sin, that habitual sin out of my life. And I'm so grateful and so thankful to him for taking that away from me. But I want to say to you, even though the addiction's gone, this very real, tangible temptation is still present. I find it often when I'm traveling, when I'm away from my family, when I'm disconnected from my wife emotionally, um, it's when these temptations rear their ugly head. So powerful, so strong. Guys, I have fallen at times over the last few years in my life and over that decade. I've fallen at times, and I can just tell you that like, that feeling is so Horrible. It feels so dirty. It feels so bad. It feels so deep and so painful. And it just sucks the life out of my day. And the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And so the guilt that he just like, just, like loads on me at that time is there to try to take that joy from me. And it's my desire that you avoid that kind of thing like the plague. Like run as far away as you can away from that stuff. You've got to eradicate sin in your lives. And guess what? We have a promise from God and he says this, that, that if we would just repent, like, you know, it says, repenting is like this. Like, your sins here, like, you're like, like, I'm, I'm gonna turn my back on this sin, right? It's turning your back on your sin. And God says, if you do that, check out this promise from the epistle of John. He says, if we confess our sins, he, God, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, God himself is faithful to cleanse you. All you have to do, is ask. It's all you got to do is ask. And when you ask, God takes your sin and he goes, look, I'm just going to bundle all this stuff up and I'm going to just throw it here and here. The, the, the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west. That's how far God has taken our sins, our ugly, our dirty stuff, and just thrown it away from it, away from us. How far on a straight line is the east from the west? Infinitely far. It, It's not counted against you anymore. Is the consequence there? Yeah. But as God said, no more, are you going to have to pay for that? Yeah, he takes it away. As far as the east is from the west. That's how far God has taken our sins away from us. Now, verse 2 takes us a little bit further, right, in Romans here. It tells us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now, what does that mean? I think there's two good ways that we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The first one is you got to crack the book. In this case, the Bible. You can crack other books too with it, but the Bible's the main one. Let's crack, let's crack the Bible, okay? Open it, read it, let's study it. Now, where do you get a Bible? Get a good study Bible, like Amazon it, like Amazon's a great source to get it. Christian bookstores, if you don't have one or you can't get access to one, come see me afterwards, we'll hook you up with a Bible. Okay, we'll get, you, we'll get you set up on that. You know, there's also audio Bibles for you who like to work out or when you're driving to work, you like to listen to stuff. Audio Bibles are a great way to get the Word of God just kind of drenching uh, over, your, over, your, over yourself, okay? Um, additionally to that, I use on my cell phone uh, the YouVersion Bible app. You guys, probably most of you have that on your phones when I saw you guys pulling your phones out, um, so use the U version. I actually have a group of eight men now that we 're going through the Bible now for the third straight time, uh, three years in a row, uh, which is awesome. We've got guys from Central here and some other friends that are in other parts of the country, kind of journeying together. The accountability's great. Like, the dialogue is really good and healthy, it's good stuff. So I encourage you to do that. Another way, quick plug, kind of life group leader, so I 'm going to plug this. Tiffany you're welcome. Uh, life groups are another awesome way to engage with the scriptures because, you know, you're engaged with people who are doing life with you and, and you and you celebrate life and you talk about the Bible and you talk about life, what's going on. And in my group, which meets every other Thursday, a group of men, we're studying the book of Acts right now. So we're doing some Bible study in there too. So life groups are a great way. Sign-ups are next week for life groups. So if you've got any questions about that, come see me after service or you're more than welcome to reach out to Tiffany and uh, we'll get you connected, okay? We'd love to have you do that. The second part is... Uh, you got to use your words. I remember when the kids were just learning to speak and one of them still kind of learning to speak, like when they're grunting at us, we would always look at them and say, just use your words. Like, stop grunting. I'll get you a banana, but use your words and tell them what you want. And I would just say the same thing to you. Just use your words. That's what prayer is. Like prayer's kind of really simple. It's a simple idea. Just talk, just use your words. You're likely either doing two things. One, talking to yourself all the time, which I do a lot of. Or two, you're talking to somebody else. All you got to do with prayer is just kind of put God into the middle of that. I mean, that's really simple. It's just communication with God, and that communication, like communication with other people, is good, but it's not as a communication, it's not as important communication as it is communication with this guy. This is good. This is better. Have communication with God. Talk to Him. He's really interested in who you are. Have you ever gotten that, like, text message, that phone call from that person? You're just like, oh, my gosh, here they are. Like, they always go on and on and on, and they cut me off all the time. Like, I don't want to pick up this phone. And, like, with God, it's not like I pick up the phone and call heaven and say, hey, angel, angel Michael, like, um, is God in? Hold on, let me check. Hey, hey, God. Chris Ferraro's calling again. Oh man, not that guy. Like he is so annoying. Listen, tell him I'm out of the office. Like that's not what God does. No, he doesn't. He doesn't actually do that, okay? God like, God actually cares who you are. God's interested in who you are and he wants to hear from you. And, and, and it's, inter- it's interesting to think about, but like in talking and in conversation, it's not just a one-way thing. Like, conversation's two ways. The hardest part for me is shutting up and listening. My wife knows that. It's shutting up and listening. It's very difficult to do. Especially when you think, well, I'm just talking to the air at times. Like, is there somebody actually listening to me? So I get it. It's the toughest part. But I find that it's easier to do when I'm not rushing. Like, when I'm very intentional about a conversation. Think about this. You have conversations with friends and spouses, coworkers, or whatever, and if they're kind of random conversations, like distractions can just, bam, start bouncing in from kind of like all these different directions, right? You rarely get a lot of good stuff done. But when you schedule time to meet with somebody, you sit down with them, you put your phone down, and you guys engage, and you actually hear each other, and there's dialogue going back and forth, and that's that's basically what it's like with God, it can be really just that simple, spending time with God. But I think this morning that we talked about that I think the Bible is in fact a credible book. And if it's a credible book, then it should be something, I believe, that changes our lives. It should be something that changes the way we approach our lives, how we do what we do in this world. And it matters when we do that. This morning, we tackled this question of the alleged heirs of the Bible, and I think you'll agree with me, as the big idea talked about, what we have is what was written. And second, we pushed back against this idea that the Bible is loaded with legendary tales. I think you're going to agree with me as well, that what we have written is actually what happened Historically. And lastly, we said by this Bible that written by 39 different authors over 1,500 years with incredible accuracy is truly a reliable book against other religious books. And the big idea there again, remember, what happened is reliable. And all I would say to you then this morning is this, to the unbeliever and believer alike, that if the Bible is in fact true, inside of these pages, Jesus Christ himself claimed to be the divine son of God the Savior of the world. And if he claimed to be the Savior of the world, then he needs to be the Lord and Savior of your life too. And if he is the leader and Lord and Savior of your life, then you have got to do your job in telling other people about who this Jesus is. And that's the Great Commission. And guess what, people? Here at Central Christian Church... We're a great commission church. We exist to help people find and follow Jesus. And what I'm saying to you this morning through all of this stuff we've talked about is that this Bible, it is so reliable. This Bible, it is so powerful. This Bible is so true, and this Bible will change your life. And please, I'm begging you, please don't keep it to yourself. Please don't stop reading it, and please live out this great commission that has been given to us. We're going to transition now, guys, into a time of communion, something we do as, as believers. And you know, when we live out this great commission, do you know what ends up happening? This, this symbolic table we're about to gather around right now to break some bread and drink some juice, which symbolizes Jesus' body and his blood, like we fill this table with more people and the banquet celebration is just that much bigger it's that much better and it gets that much more amazing do you know as Jesus sat around I likely think you know that Jesus probably just sat around with his 12 and they're breaking bread and he's passing everything around and he's the Lord of all the world he must know what John was gonna do he must be curious of Peter's life and see what was gonna transpire after he left this earth like he looks and sees you and says, I know who you are. I know where you're going. And I know you want to be with me and I want to be with you too. And as we celebrate this communion table, that's what this is all about. See, Jesus coming in the flesh for us to be part of his table, be part of his supper, to celebrate his life and to see our lives transformed and changed. That's the message of this bread. That's the message of this blood that was given for us. Now, if you're not a believer this morning, it's okay as the the cups and the wafers come down, you're more than welcome to let that pass you by. But I would ask you just to consider inside your heart that what I said this morning, if it was convincing in any sort of way, then maybe you need to take a little bit of a look inside of yourself as the stuff's passing by and people are praying. To ask yourself, God, are you calling me to a relationship with Jesus? And if you hear that voice, come see me afterwards, would you? I'd love to talk to you more about who this Jesus is and how amazing he is and how he can change your life because he's changed mine. And he's changed a lot of folks in this room too. Let's give thanks to Jesus and celebrate a great meal together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for... Being the words that jump out of the Bible to us. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice on the cross. And thank you that because of that, Lord, we don't have to live in this place of sin and despair anymore. We don't have to live like the world, but we can be transformed into your likeness, Lord Jesus. And Lord Jesus, as we celebrate this meal together, God, Would you remind us of your death and of your glorious victory from the grave? As we await your return someday soon, Lord, we beckon you, Lord Jesus, as as John did in Revelation. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in your holy and precious name we celebrate today. Amen.